It was an anticlimactic final weekend in baseball, but the Astros found a way to capture another AL West title. Let the hunt for Red October begin as I'll preview the top storylines and handicap the wildcard round, which begins tomorrow. Almost a quarter into the NFL season, are the Niners head and shoulders better than the other 31 teams in the sport? I'll tell you why they are not, as week four is just about in the books. No more talk about the Colorado Buffaloes and the Fighting Irish got out a huge road win at Duke as college football moves on to week six. Another big NBA trade as the Celtics try to shift the power in the Eastern Conference. An early blow for the Tampa Bay Lightning as the season commences on Saturday. The Europeans hang on to win the Ryder Cup and Canelo Alvarez defends his super middleweight title. The podcast hits another milestone as episode 400 is about to kick off. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels podcast. On wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest hope everybody's doing well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits and why shouldn't i be not only has the weather cleared up to where it's going to feel like summer here in the northeast over the next few days but october is here a new month the final quarter of 2023 has begun and ready to jumpstart the 400th that's right count them one two three four hundredth episode of the podcast Delivering an hour of sports talk unlike any other out here as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back and let me start off by saying a big giant thank you, hugs and just for all the support and all the love here over the last going on six years. It's been five and a half in the books To be precise, it's five years, seven months, and one day since I started this podcast. And here I am at episode 400. Here's to 400 more times 10 along the way as I do what I love. Talking sports, sharing my thoughts, opinions, everything that I've, with every fiber of my being, just getting into all that's happening in the sports universe on a week-in, week-out basis, twice a week now for... More than a year and a half. In fact, it is going to be a year and a half on the 7th, this coming Saturday, because I went from a weekly podcast 
from the very beginning up until April 7th, 2022. And then now, as we approach this coming Saturday, it will be exactly 18 months since I've done two podcasts a week and plenty more to come from as long as I'm alive and breathing. So thank you so much again for all your support. Keep on listening. Share with the sports fan in your life. Pass it along to someone that you think that would love to hear all sports in one podcast. It's not just a football podcast, baseball. If you've listened to me, whether you're a newbie or not, you know that I roll my sleeves up and get into everything that's cooking on the sports stove. And I'm certainly grateful, thankful, and blessed that for those who have listened over the years or recently or whatever it may be, trust me, it does not go unnoticed how much your unwavering support means to me as well as what I put out there on my social media accounts, in particular my YouTube channel, which is slowly but surely growing and I plan to take that to big heights as well as the podcast. But one more time, thank you guys and gals for listening, supporting, following, etc. as I continue to move along here in this podcast universe. So now that we put that aside, let's get right to it. And before I get to the... NFL, I have to start off with baseball with the playoffs now on the eve of the wildcard round and the 162 game marathon in the books and it was anticlimactic. That's all that we could pretty much sum up these last few days of the season. When you look back at Thursday when we discussed hoping that we would have a series come down to the wire, whether it was Texas and Seattle, Houston, Arizona, a fight for the final wildcard spot in the American League, and the same for the National League, whether it was the Marlins, Reds, Diamondbacks, and as it was, you had teams fall flat on their face, i.e. Arizona and Texas, and I'll get to them in a second, and you had teams that Rose above it all, whether it's the Miami Marlins with all of the disaster last week at City Field where they had that one game postponed for a doubleheader there on Wednesday and then they had to leave town, as crazy as this is going to sound, and you can't even make this one up. When the Marlins took a 2-1 lead in the top of the ninth there at City Field on Thursday night and then the rains came to where they had to sit through a 3-hour and 41 minute rain delay, which went well past midnight, and when they took the tarp off the field at 12.20 a.m., only to put it back on at 12.41 to cancel the game or postpone it at 12.58, where the Pirates had to get on a plane to go to Pittsburgh. I understand it's not the West Coast, but they had them sit around all night just to see whether or not the rain was going to subside, and even though it did, 20 minutes past midnight, and therefore they were trying to squeeze it in, but they couldn't because the field... By the time they got it ready, it started to rain again and they had to put the tarp on. But they persevered and they were able to win games that they needed to so where they went into yesterday's game putting their feet up knowing that they already secured a playoff spot. And then to round it all off, and this is the big storyline heading into the postseason, although we're not going to see them until Saturday, but the Houston Astros somehow, someway, won another American League West championship the Texas Rangers fell flat on their face over the weekend in Seattle and Seattle needed those games in the worst way but the one game that they did need which was Saturday because Houston kept on winning and this was after Houston beat Seattle on that final game there Wednesday had a day off and then went to the desert to play the Diamondbacks and swept them over the weekend to the point where the Diamondbacks 
They backed into the postseason considering that they lost their last four games and I understand they had trials and tribulations with travel and weather and scheduling as well, but the Marlins were able to persevere where the Diamondbacks didn't and the Astros became a team that a lot of people thought were going to be in the wild card round. They had a two and a half game deficit that they had to make up coming into the weekend and you can thank the Seattle Mariners who are not in the postseason based on their play down the stretch and we talked about that on Thursday and the Astros right now are sitting pretty at home with their feet up knowing that they could align their starting rotation that they could rest up a little bit and they could get ready for a division series come Saturday where when you think about it they absolutely had no business winning a division and you could thank the Texas Rangers for their ineptitude down the stretch and not being able to pull out a division championship which they led in first place pretty much the entire season up until about the early part of August and as much as they stumbled, fumbled and bumbled they were able to get themselves back into first place and then fell apart there late to the point where they have to go on the road to play the Tampa Bay Rays in the first matchup come tomorrow night or tomorrow afternoon, I should say, 3 p.m. And I'll talk about the scheduling and the wild card round in a moment. But as much as it wasn't a thrilling and drama-filled weekend, but just knowing that the Astros rose from the ashes to win a division and will not face an opponent up until this weekend, that was the story of yesterday and pretty much the last four days of Major League Baseball. And now you have a wild card round that, as we go through the storylines there, you have some very unsexy matchups. You have the hallmark teams that I've talked about here over the last few weeks that are out of the postseason altogether. So it's not as if you're going to have the Yankees or the Cardinals or the Giants, the Cubs, the Mets, the Padres, the Red Sox. None of those teams you're going to see not only in the wild card round, but waiting in the wings in the division series. So with those teams out of the mix, I don't know how ESPN and what their rating is going to be like here over the next few days because you have Texas going to Tampa tomorrow. That's your 3 p.m. game, which I don't like the start time and I understand they try to push it up so they can have more of a primetime slot. And again, this is cable. It's not as if it's going to be on regular TV. In fact, now that I think about it, let me double check that because I believe the Texas-Tampa game is going to be on ABC. So does that mean the nightcap, which will be at 8 p.m., who would have thought the Miami Marlins would have a primetime slot going up against the Philadelphia Phillies? Well, that's what you have there tomorrow night, 8 p.m. So what I'm thinking is is that you have 3 and 8 on ESPN. No, that is not the case. Why ABC has chosen Texas and Tampa to be throughout the country on a major network and over-the-air network, I might add, where you have Toronto at Minnesota, 4.30 ESPN, Arizona at Milwaukee, 7 p.m. ESPN 2, and then Miami at Philadelphia, 8 p.m. on ESPN. And that is your schedule for the first two games. And of course, if it goes to third game, we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. I'm sure if you have two teams standing, you're going to have probably, I would think, a 4.30 and 8 o'clock double dip if there are two teams standing. If all four teams are standing, of course, I would think that the schedule will remain the same. If it's three teams, I could see it being a three, four, thirty, and eight. That's just off the top of my head. And if there's just one 
final matchup that goes a third game, I'm sure that that will be 8pm ESPN or maybe even ABC for that matter. And that's going to go up against the football, which is going to be tough. And I understand that that's Amazon Prime. Your Thursday night game off the top of my head, I couldn't even tell you with the NFL. And I'll get to the NFL, obviously, after the baseball. That'll come to me as far as who the matchup is on Thursday night. But for baseball in this first round, I don't know if the average sports fan, the good sports fan, I won't even say diehard, but the good sports fan, they're going to look at these matchups and say, wait a second. Why should I even turn on my television set, even if there's nothing to watch, let's say Tuesday or even Wednesday night, to even get into what is happening here in the first round of the wild card? And like I said, when the regular sports fan is going to say, oh, who are the Yankees playing? Wait, the Yankees aren't in the postseason? All right, well, I'm sure the Cardinals or Cubs. Weren't the Cubs in the playoff mix down the stretch? And of course, they folded like a cheap suit, as we saw. What about the Cubs? Aren't the Cubbies playing somewhere? Oh, no, they got ousted? Oh, jeez. All right. Well, uh, let me see who's playing. Arizona? What? Who? Uh, Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling are coming back to pitch in this uh, first round for the Diamondbacks? And then they're going to look at some of these other teams. All right, Tampa's been a mainstay. Understood. All right, fine. But Texas, with no Max Scherzer, obviously Jacob DeGrom has not suited up since late April. And that's a team where, other than that part of the country, they're in the Southwest or at least in the central time zone, that maybe some people could look at the Texas Rangers and hope to see if they could go up against the Astros. And I'll get to the seating also as well in a moment. But this is not. And for me, I love baseball. And yes, you know I'm going to follow this to the very end. But I don't know how baseball is going to be able to survive here in October with these teams playing. Now, when you get to the next round, different story because you do have the Astros You do have the Dodgers and you do have the Braves. Those are teams that have been in the World Series here in this decade from 2020 on. So you have that to hang your hat on. And then you also have the Baltimore Orioles, a young upstart team where I get it. They're not a national team. They're not a team that a lot of people may even think of American League Baseball when we think about the powerhouses. It's not going to be the Orioles, but considering the young team, and I would think they'll be on a lot of people's radar, but still... They're not LA, they're not Houston, they're not Atlanta when it comes to the big picture as far as the heavyweight teams or the the elite teams in Major League Baseball. And quickly, let me go through the series. Now Tampa, here's one of the storylines too. Tampa has been a regular season, I won't say juggernaut, it's a little strong, but they've been a very solid team that throughout 162 games, they're just as good as anyone. But we haven't seen it in October, and I get it, 2020 notwithstanding, and we have to include that year because they had to play an extra round, and they had to play in neutral sites, and they did make it to a World Series to a Game 6. But when we look at the last two years, where they won 100 games two years ago and fell in the Division Series against the Red Sox, and then they also lost last year in the Wild Card round to the Guardians. And the Guardians were certainly not world beaters, although they played very well there in August and September to capture the AL Central. But again... They are the Guardians, and Tampa was unable to win a game, and one of those games went, what, 18 innings in that second game where Oscar Gonzalez hit that home run and sent Tampa packing in 2022. And now they have the Texas Rangers coming into their building. Tampa is a team that, with their great start and had been in first place pretty much for the first three and a half months of the season before Baltimore took over, now it's time for them to prove themselves. And that 
I get it. It's not a storyline that a lot of people are going to wrap their arms around. But one more time, Tampa has had a lot of success here in the regular season. And I talked about them in the middle of the season as far as the way they played and how just resourceful they've been. But it has not translated to October baseball to the point where they've made it to American League Championship Series or World Series. And I get it, 2020, they did that. But in these last two years, they have not performed on a big stage and makes me think that they're more built for the regular season than for October. So let's see if they prove us wrong here with the first game there tomorrow. And I think Tampa's going to win that series. I don't know how Texas, even with Bruce Bochy, the manager, the veteran that he is, three World Series titles in San Francisco, is going to be able to get this team rallied around to know that they pretty much had a division wrapped up and they would have had five days off before hosting this coming weekend. And now they have to go on the road to Tampa, not that that's going to be a hostile environment to say the least, but a Tampa team that I'm sure they're going to look to prove and show that they not only belong in the American League, which we understand, but they have some, I'm not going to say demons to slay, but they really have to show up and show out that they're a team that's going to be in the long run here when it comes to this postseason. So I'm going to pick Tampa to win. What the hell? I'm going to say they're going to sweep the two-game series. Now watch, Texas win game one and then have Tampa on the ropes in game two. But I just like Tampa from that regard. I'm sure that they are probably under the radar when it comes to one of those upper echelon elite teams. Maybe people think that they'll win in three games. And it's easy to pick these series in three games because they are relatively close. There's maybe one series that we could discuss that maybe there'll be a sweep. And you're probably going to get two sweeps as it is. Or a few sweeps that is. Because last year, think about this. In the wild card round, and it was the first iteration of the wild card round, not only did you have three road teams win those series, but you only had one of the four series go the distance, the full three games, and that was San Diego and the Mets, and we understand and know what happened there in that final game, where the Mets bowed out with one hit and lost 6 nothing. So, I see Tampa winning that. Now, Toronto and Minnesota... Toronto has had such a roller coaster season, and Minnesota quietly wins the AL Central, and they've played some solid ball. Now, you have to wonder about Carlos Correa, who went on the IL late in the year with a foot injury, and Correa, who commanded the big money, whether it was in San Francisco and then by Steve Cohen and the Mets before ending up back in Minnesota with that $275 million contract, and underwhelming numbers that they were. What did he have? 18 homers, 65 RBIs. He batted, I believe, 270, maybe even less than that for a guy that's making $27 million a year who certainly underachieved making that big money as it is, but he is a big-time postseason player. And if Minnesota, talk about slaying some demons, they have not won a postseason series in forever. You got to go back to 2002 when they played the Angels in an ALCS, and since then, the Yankees have slaughtered them year in and year out, it seems, in the postseason They were unable to get out of the postseason a couple of years ago when Houston went into their building and beat them. That was during the pandemic year. And the Twins, even with all of their recent success, 2019, they hit all those home runs in the regular season, which I believe the Braves broke as a record, even though I haven't seen that. But they were challenging the Twins for the most home runs in a regular season by a team. And even that year, they couldn't beat the Yankees in that opening round of the wild card in uh, 2019. So for all of that, The Twins may be a team that could upset Toronto. And Toronto, we understand that they have firepower in their offense and a very good 
rotation and bullpen, but they're so up and down, hot and cold, I don't know if I could trust them. But even with that being said, I think Toronto's going to win the series because the Twins, I don't want to say they're just happy to be here and lucky because of a bad AL Central. Who knows? Maybe they'll shock some people and finally win because they are certainly overdue to win a postseason series. But I'm going to say Toronto in three only because I think they're coming in as a better team overall, better starting pitching, although the Twins have been resourceful in their own right. But... I don't know. Would I be shocked if Minnesota wins? No, but I'm going to say Toronto here is going to be your road team that's going to come out victorious. Arizona-Milwaukee, talk about a team that's coming in limping. A young Diamondback team head by Tory Lavelle, the manager. And I don't know what they're going to have left in the tank here knowing that they have stumbled down the stretch. Milwaukee has played well here in this final stretch of games before winning the division. Milwaukee, who... They haven't been able to get out of the first round themselves over the years. A couple years ago, they lost to the Atlanta Braves, if you recall. Freddie Freeman off of Josh Hader in a game four in Milwaukee. So the Brewers, they're not world beaters offensively, but I think that they'll win this series just based on the inexperience and just the rough stretch of games here down to the final portion of this regular season for the Diamondbacks. So I'm going to say Milwaukee. Should I give my Arizona a game? I'm going to say Milwaukee wins in two. And then Miami and Philadelphia. Now the Phillies, the defending NL champs, they've also played well here over the final stretch of the season. And they won yesterday to get their 90th win of the season for the Phils, who pretty much were in cruise control over the last couple of months, knowing that they had that fourth playoff spot in the National League. But Miami comes in. Believe it or not, I'm going to say they're a dangerous team. For everything they've had to endure here, especially as I talked about there at the top with the fiasco at City Field with the weather and the delays and leaving New York in the middle of the night and almost having to play a makeup game today, which thankfully they do not. And this is a team that could have been left dead and buried a couple of times here late August into September, but they've shown a lot of metal, a lot of toughness, and a lot of scrappiness. Does this mean that they could hang with the Phillies, who they know very well as they obviously are division foes? I think Philadelphia, because they've been under the radar, and I'm sure Miami's going to be a tough out. And that's actually surprising to say because they don't have a big offensive team, but they have decent offensive players led by Luis Arias, the singles hitter, but at the same time, he is a hit machine. Jorge Soler has pop. And guys that, for whatever the reason, have played well under Skip Schumacher, the first-year manager of the Marlins, I feel like the Marlins are going to win a game. And mind you, they're not going to have Sandy Alcantara, the reigning NL Cy Young Award winner from last year. But they have a very good bullpen, a deep bullpen at that. And would I be surprised if Miami wins this series? I have to say I wouldn't. But I think the Phillies will win in three games. So I'm going to say two series goes three. That being Toronto, Minnesota, and then Miami and Philadelphia are the two series that I think will go to distance. And I will pick Toronto as the one road team that will win Could Texas, Arizona, Miami, I think out of those three, I think Texas has a better shot. I'm going to say Miami second and Arizona third to come out victorious in that series. But when we take a look at the scheduling, as I talked about there with the 3, 4.37 and 8 o'clock time slots, this is going to be a hard sell to America to watch any of these postseason games or any of these first round here in the wild card for them to be intrigued or at least to be compelled to watch any of these matchups. Sad to say, that's all there is to it. 
Now, one other thing before I move to some news and notes on baseball. This is where the powers that be have to huddle around once this postseason is over. And they really have to think about this format moving forward because... The way that this postseason is broken down, and the same for last year for that matter, where you have the three versus six, four versus five, so I'm just going to use the National League for starters. So your three, six matchup is Milwaukee, Arizona, and your four, five is Philly and Miami. So if Philly and Miami, let's say if the Phillies win that series, they are going to play not the, it's not going to be broken down by seed to where the worst seed is going to play the top seed. So you're going to have a scenario where the Phillies, if they win, they're going to end up playing the Braves. So you're going to have a similar situation to last year where you had both the 4-5 matchups, they're going to play the top seed, and then you're going to have the two seed play the 3-6 matchup. So let's just say if the Diamondbacks do win their series against the Milwaukee Brewers, they won't play the Atlanta Braves. They're going to play the Dodgers and they have to change that because you're going to have a scenario where you're going to have Tampa, if they win their series against the Texas Rangers, guess who they play in the first round? No, they're not going to play the two-seeded Houston Astros. They're going to play the Baltimore Orioles, which will be compelling because they are division foes. But remember, you had that scenario a couple of years ago when the Dodgers who won 106 games and were the four seed and were able to win that first round. And who did they play in the division series? They played the San Francisco Giants. And how did that turn out for the Giants who won 107 games and looked like they could have been on a fast track to the World Series and they ended up losing in five games to their heated rivals down south. So this is a year where if something like that happens, maybe it's a scenario where if the Phillies beat the Braves again, and I'm sure the Braves are going to want to get back at them considering what happened there last year in the division series, but Major League Baseball has to change that. They have to reseed based on who advances and what teams will lie after the wildcard round and do it that way as opposed to having the 3-6 matchup play the 2 seed and the 4-5 play the 1. That doesn't make any sense. Or switch it around where you're going to have the 3-6 play the 1 seed and then have the 4-5 play the 2. That's all there is to it. Because then, even if the lower seed does happen to lose, and then the three seed plays the one seed, I understand it's a little tricky because it should be the four seed playing the one, but better that than have a team like the Phillies go up against the Braves, or in this case, a team like the Tampa Bay Rays go up against Baltimore, who are only separated by a few games in the division, as opposed to the other way around. So let's see what's going to happen here in this first round. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if the rest of America is, but that's what we got there as we wrap up the wild card round and, of course, the end of the baseball season. Now, with that being said, a couple of things. My over-unders real quick, thanks to Toronto not getting the sweep over the weekend. So I was 2-4, and four, terrible, with my over-under win totals. Toronto was 90.5, not 89.5. And as it was, they ended up at 89. I believe it was 89-73. So even if that number 89.5 was the case, I would have fell short. So 2-4. and four, My two wins were the overs of Arizona and Pittsburgh and then Texas, Tampa, Washington and now Toronto being over was just brutal and ugly to even watch for the final stretch of games. So that's what we got there, number one. Number two, Buck Showalter, no surprise. I talked about this 
probably the latter part of July into August, check those receipts. I figured that Showalter wasn't going to come back. Now, watching the headlines here in New York says, Mets part ways with Buck Showalter. I'm sure that was mutual. I'm sure that Showalter wasn't going to come back considering that you have a new vice president of baseball operations in David Stearns, number one. Number two, considering what was said there by Max Scherzer, how the team was going to go through this transition period and they were more going to fine-tune and maybe retool a little bit, but they weren't going to reload and try to come back next April with a team that was going to be a World Series favorite. So with Showalter, who I believe is what now, 68 years of age, knowing that when he came here two years ago, it was to get to the promised land to get the Mets, their organization and the fan base, a World Series. And considering that it's not going to be the case, or at least that's not the path that the organization is going to take come next year, I had a feeling that he was going to be gone. So there was no surprise there. And let's see what David Stearns is going to do as far as a manager, will it be Craig Council? That's been the rumors considering his connection there in Milwaukee with the current Brewer manager. But a lot of the rumors have maybe Council, depending on what happens here in this postseason. If it doesn't go well, he may take a year off. And if that's the case, the Mets aren't going to have a stopgap guy for Council then to come in in 2025. I can't see that being the case. But I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to go more of an analytical, younger manager from a player that maybe retired within the last few years that could just come in, you plug him in right away, you're going to pay him maybe a million dollars if that. That's not to say that Steve Cohen wants to be cheap and not pay a manager, but I could see the Mets going that route as opposed to going for the bigger manager a la Buck Showalter that they did a couple years ago or the Rangers nabbing Bruce Bochy or maybe even trying to see where Mike Shosha is in this day and age. I don't see that happening. I can see the Mets going maybe from within or just going outside the organization for a more analytical driven slash younger type manager. And I hope it's not Gabe Kapler who got fired from San Francisco and he got, I'm not going to say he got screwed, but the Giants did pretty well this year and I understand they faded down the stretch, but nobody expected them to play well considering how they performed last year after that 107 win team that I talked about a few minutes ago, two years ago. But I hope the Mets don't go that route, and I'll say this, I know it's not going to happen, it'll be a PR disaster, especially here in New York, but I got the guy. Again, they won't hire him, but Wally Backman, I think, would be a perfect Met manager, and that's all I'll say there, but that's not going to happen, so let's see how that's going to unfold there with the front office with the Mets as now we move into the offseason, and then finally, terrible news yesterday regarding Tim Wakefield, the former knuckleballer, most known as a Boston Red Sox, but also came up in the Pirate organization, played a million years, won 200 games in his career. I know that the highlight is going to be the Aaron Boone home run in the 2003 ALCS, one of the great ALCSs that you could ever watch. A lot of drama, a lot of tension, brawls, comebacks, just you name it. And Wakefield, who threw that first pitch in the bottom of the 11th to Aaron Boone, who hit the home run as the Yankees went on to the World Series and the Red Sox were foiled yet again, the curse of Bambino, before snapping it a year later. But Wakefield, who had that long career, had that rubber arm, and recently, I don't know why, if this was true, but Kurt Schilling on his podcast or his platform announced that he had brain cancer. We didn't know that it was terminal. I didn't hear... Schilling's podcast and if he put that out before the Wakefield family or anyone else within his circle had put that out there shame on Schilling for his own 
which is terrible. If he did that for his own doing and wanted to put that out there just to put his name out in the news cycle or whatever, that's just a terrible job if that's the case. Kurt, you know better than that. And all the outpouring you saw there yesterday, David Ortiz and so many other people for Wakefield, 57 years of age, gone way too soon. Just a terrible story. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family. Of course, Major League Baseball, the Red Sox, Pirates, etc. One more time, just an awful story just to hear Wakefield gone at just such a young age. Uh, just, it really tugs at the heartstrings. And uh, I mean, what more can you say? All right, now let's turn our attention to the NFL as I put on my helmet and shoulder pads. I had to give baseball their just due now that October is here. So for the football fan, and as we take a look back at week four, here's the one thing I'm going to pluck from yesterday. And there were a couple of things that I could really unpack, but the schedule wasn't great. And I'll go through my winners and losers in a minute, but... When we take a look at almost a quarter poll of the NFL season, and thanks to the 17-game season, we have to wait until after next week, and then we have the buys incorporated next week. So almost you have to wait two weeks for teams to play more than the quarter of the schedule. That would have not been the case if there was a 16-game season. And as we all know, the NFL, being the pigs that they are, to add the extra game, I digress. But the San Francisco 49ers, as constituted right this moment, we would think that they are the most complete team and maybe the best team in the NFL. And I understand I come off the heels of last week when I talked about Miami and how that 70-point offensive explosion against the Broncos, how they were maybe another team that, I don't want to say is laying in the weeds, but we didn't count as one of the top teams in the sport. And I'll get to Miami-Buffalo in a second. But for the San Francisco 49ers, and I'm here to throw cold water on them, Now, we understand that they are a stout team, offensively, defensively. We've talked about this going back to last year. And as I said before, and I'll say one more time, the way this team is built, they always seem to play from in front because they have the great balance of a running game and enough weapons in the passing game that Brock Purdy does not have to be spectacular. All he has to do is be steady. And we haven't seen Brock Purdy in a situation where down 24-20 with four minutes to go and has to go 75 yards down the field to get the game-winning score or even late in the third quarter when they're down 23-13 and he has to make a play or two and you would think that Kyle Shanahan will still stick to the run game and will not have Brock Purdy be under-centered to make every play known to man. He would still try to find that balance. But we haven't seen that pressure moment for Brock Purdy in any of the games that he's performed in. So you want to talk about that. And we understand how great they are defensively as well. They are one of the top defensive teams in the NFL. But based on that little illustration that I had there as far as Purdy. And on top of that, look at the teams who they've beaten here in the first four games. They've beaten a very mediocre Pittsburgh team that I understand they're 2-2, two and two, but they got pasted in Houston yesterday and made C.J. Stroud look like a Hall of Famer in the 1 o'clock window there between Texans and Steelers. They also beat a sorry Giant team who plays tonight at home against Seattle, which is not a game that I'm going to pop on at 8-15. And I get it, there's nothing else to really watch, but still, that is not a game that I'm going to be jumping up and down and waiting with bated breath to watch. They also beat the Rams, who won comfortably there at SoFi a couple of weeks back. 
And then yesterday, they beat the Cardinals, who beat the Cowboys the week before. Very impressive. But you knew that they weren't going to be a match for the Niners in their building in Santa Clara. And although you'd have to say that San Francisco is probably the best team and the best roster from start to finish, but I don't believe that as of right this second, granted that they're 4-0, and the same for the Eagles for that matter, and the Eagles have not played great as well. But I don't think that they're the best team in the sport. They play in a weak conference, let's start there, where the only match that's going to be when the money's on the line is going to be the Eagles, who they played down the road, I believe, in early December, and then next week at home against the Cowboys on a Sunday night matchup, which the whole world is waiting to see. So other than those two teams, are the Lions going to be a team that's going to upset the apple cart when the money's on the line? I don't think so. Nobody from the NFC South is going to, please, even be in a quarter. We'll hang with the Niners in any, you can play on the moon. And the Niners will probably beat them with one arm's tie behind their backs. And the rest of the division, I got Seattle, all right, maybe they'll give them a bit of a challenge this year. But the conference is just, as we talked about in the beginning of the year, it's awful. And other than Eagles and Cowboys, those are the only two teams that are going to give them a fight here as far as getting out of the conference and playing in a Super Bowl. So the true feel of this team is going to be in January... Now, mind you, it's going to be important whether or not they get the one seed. Remember, Philadelphia got it last year, and that's going to be a fight to the finish between those two teams. And that game in December, which I believe is in Philadelphia, is going to be for all the marbles. As a matter of fact, come to think of it, the game will be in Philadelphia because you had the Giants play there last Thursday night or two Thursdays ago, and you had Dallas playing there this week. So the other NFC East matchups will be at Washington and at Philadelphia. So that game is going to go a long way as to who gets home field. And I think the Niners, if they do... They'll have to just play two games as opposed to the three last year. And we know Brock Purdy got hurt in the championship game, et cetera, et cetera. But this is where a lot of people are going to think, oh, the Niners are the best team by far. Yes, they have the best roster. And I believe, as of right this minute, they're the most complete team. But I can't say they're the best. And we all know when we get to January and February, that's when we'll find out if they're the best. And I hate to say it, to my guy, Louis Pizarro, the big Niner fan that he is, I'm throwing cold water on your team. Now, they are an excellent team. I'm not going to discount that. But for them to already put them in as the NFC representative for the Super Bowl, and chances are they probably will be, and I even picked them to go to the Super Bowl. So, hand raised high in the air. But are they the best team right now? Well, based on who they've played so far, and I get it, that's their schedule, I'm not going to call them that. And now let me get to the winners and losers. I'll go through this quick and the schedule as well because you had some terrible games yesterday. I mean, that's all there is to it. First off... Winner number one are the Buffalo Bills. Now, are the Dolphins a fake team? I'm not going to say that. But their defense, as we talked about last week, even though they were 3-0 and they put up 70 points offensively, etc., etc., but their defense, as you saw there yesterday, they got picked apart by Josh Allen and company. And that is also a team that will make you think that they could also be arguably the best team in the sport. Because after that hiccup and just lackluster sleepwalk of a performance there against the Jets at Monday night, and you could attribute that to them not being cohesive and not playing a lot in the preseason, well, they've turned it around to the point where Buffalo is now 3-1. and one. They have a top spot in the AFC East as of right this moment with the tiebreaker, even though both teams are at 3-1. and one. And again, not to say that the Bills have beaten world-beater type teams, 
But a, we know that the gauntlet is in the AFC and they are going to be a team to be reckoned with when it's all said and done. And in fact, that is my Super Bowl winner. That's the team that I picked to win the whole thing because I figured that they'd be under the radar. And granted that, yes, they played the Raiders at home and the Raiders are awful and the Commanders... Listen, they were competitive yesterday against the Niners, but they beat them from pillar to post there down in D.C. or in Maryland there last week. But for the Bills with the 48-20 performance, sad news, they have Tredavious White who's going to be gone, it looks like from an Achilles tear, and who knows if they're going to start dredging up the whole let's convert to grass as opposed to playing on the AstroTurf or the field turf, whatever it is. I don't know if there's going to be much of a groundswell there because the quarterback is a lot much more important to their team than a cornerback, although cornerback is important. One of the top skill positions that you definitely need to have filled on your roster, but the Bills with a big performance there by Josh Allen, they got it to Tagovailoa all afternoon there yesterday in Orchard Park, and the Bills showed that not only are they the favorites in the AFC East, but maybe in the conference overall, based on that performance there yesterday, beating the Dolphins the way they did and slowing down that high-octane offense, like I mentioned, Josh Allen had a very big game, 320 yards in the air. And even though the kid, Devon A-Chain, who had 101 yards, who came out of nowhere, had the big performance there last week against the Broncos. But for Allen, who threw for four touchdowns, Stephon Diggs had a big day, six for 120 for three touchdowns. And the Bills go away with a huge 48-20 win there in their building and put themselves right in the mix there in the AFC. My second winner, I got to give it up, the Denver Broncos. Now, the Bears, who have had all types of problems throughout the week, they had to send Chase Claypool home because of, I don't know if I want to say, with some character issues, we understand that he was unable to play there as he was an active yesterday and sent home and did not play well in the opening game against Green Bay, not fulfilling on blocks and schemes and things of that nature. So the Bears are just a flat-out mess. But even though, with all of the comments that Justin Fields had mentioned 10 days prior, how they let the reins loose, and he had his biggest game of the year by far, throwing four touchdowns and 330 yards, but the Broncos, who came back from a huge deficit, and we know the Broncos, who have struggled here early on in the season, and granted, it's not the 85 Bears, as we all know, so we could talk about how the Bears are just as awful as Denver, But to be on the road and for everything that the Broncos coming into the season with Sean Payton and Russell Wilson hoping for a renaissance, well, we saw their team bounce back in a big way down 28-7 late in the fourth, or excuse me, third quarter, where they got a touchdown there in the late part of the third quarter, and then with 17 unanswered and overall 24 unanswered points for them to win 31-28 at Soldier Field, that was a huge win. And then they had the Jets coming in to the Mile High City this week. Now, does this mean that this is going to be a turnaround for the Broncos? I'm not going to go as far as saying that. But we're going to wait and see what this week is going to be for the Broncos, even for the Jets, because of all the talk there between Sean Payton and his comments with the former Bronco coach, Nathaniel Hackett, who is now the offensive coordinator for the Jets, and for everything that was said during the preseason, and now it's going to culminate. I'm sure they're going to take the high road and poo-poo it. But the Jets, who were desperate, and now with the Broncos getting off the snide, it's going to be an interesting matchup. Not a highlight by any stretch, but we'll see what's going to take place here in the media over the course of these next few days leading up to the game there on Sunday. My losers of the week, the first one's going to be the New Orleans Saints. And I understand Derek Carr is injured. He 
Left that game last week at Lambeau with the shoulder injury that he said during the week that if I can play, I can play. And although his numbers were paltry, but I can't put it all on him, that Saint defense, which is supposed to be one of the top ranked in the league, and Tampa's offense is certainly not the one of the Super Bowl year with Tom Brady, Antonio Brown, Gronkowski, Mike Evans, who I believe was out with an injury. And for the Buccaneers to go into their building and to... Pretty much win from start to finish, 26-9. That is a testament to a Saint team that I thought was going to underachieve this year. Now granted, it's only four games, I can't get crazy, and that's one of the reasons why I picked them as an under. But for Tampa to go in there and to win the game the way they did, pretty much without a doubt, and Baker Mayfield, who's done very well here in the early part of his Buccaneer career, 25 for 32, 246 yards, did throw a pick, but also threw for three touchdowns. And Carr only threw for 127 yards. And for the Buccaneers to go in there and put the lights out in the Superdome on this same team, and especially with their defense, that's all you need to know as far as them maybe probably having a long year. But with that division, it's pretty much up for grabs as to who's going to come out on top. It could be the Falcons, who took a step back there yesterday, and I'll get into them in a minute. The Buccaneers are now in first place at 3-1. and one. Look at that. And the Carolina Panthers still have not gotten out of their own way as they haven't gotten their first win with a loss there against Minnesota, which I won't even get into. But that's loser number one. And loser number two for the second time this year, and I have to bring them up. What is going on with the Bengals? They've played two road games, and they've put up a field goal in each of those two games. At Cleveland, and then yesterday in Tennessee, in an inexplicable loss. And I understand that Joe Burrow was under duress yesterday. For him, had an awful game. They cannot get their offense on track. I don't know what's going on there. You even have Jamar Chase wondering what's happening where they asked him, he's like, do you feel like you're not getting the ball as much? And he's like, well, I know I could get the ball a little bit more and I'm paraphrasing and even threw in an expletive in there. But the Bengals, you have to wonder whether or not they're going to get on track at any point this year. They're already two and a half games behind the Ravens in the AFC North who beat the Browns yesterday. And with them losing to the Ravens earlier this year in week two, they have a lot of work to make up and a lot of ground So who knows if the Bengals are going to click at any point. And if they do, they're going to be probably at the bottom of the AFC rung as a 5th, 6th, or even 7th seed. And I understand that they could be dangerous based on their recent pedigree of them getting to a Super Bowl and a championship game last year. But who knows if this year is going to click for Cincinnati. And with that calf injury by Joe Burrow, and even consulting Aaron Rodgers with that, and how to navigate through a season and through just a 60-minute ball game with that type of injury... I don't know if this is going to be their year. And what I mean by their year is have the success anything close to what they've had here over the past two years. That was just a putrid offensive display. And overall, to come out of Tennessee, and this isn't a Tennessee team that you could harken back to the days of Steve McNair, may he rest in peace, Eddie George, and Jeff Fisher being the coach. And I understand they've had some success on the Mike Vrabel, but that was just deplorable. And who knows if they're going to get on track at any point this year. So those are my two losers of the week. Now here's how bad the week was. The only other game worth noting to discuss. I understand Detroit went into Green Bay. Big win for them there on a Thursday night. They won 34-20. Jordan Love was not great. And the Lions are now 3-1. and And it looks like they're going to be in control of that division from here on out. But you had... Washington and Philly go down to the wire to where Philly, Jake Elliott hits the field goal there in overtime. Jalen Hurts had his biggest game offensively to date. A.J. Brown with 175 yards receiving. And give it up, the Commanders who had a stinker the week before against Buffalo 
certainly played well and came back tooth and nail. They had that touchdown there right at the final gun there in the fourth quarter to J.N. Dotson from Sam Howell, who played a lot better than he did the week before against the Buffalo Bills. But the Eagles were able to prevail to keep their undefeated or their 4-0 record intact or to stay unbeaten, I should say. And the Commanders, who got off to that 2-0 start, now 2-2, and who knows where they're going to go here for the rest of the year. So give it up for the Eagles as they stay staring eyeball to eyeball with the Niners as the top team in the NFC. As far as the rest of these games, I'm going to breeze right through them, people, because there is really nothing to unpack here. Atlanta going to Jacksonville. Oh, I sorry, to London to play at Wembley. I didn't watch the game. I did not have a feel for this game. I know Calvin Ridley had a touchdown against his former team, but the Jaguars went 23-7 as they'll stay there overseas because they'll play the Buffalo Bills this coming Sunday in the next London series game. And we'll talk more about that on Thursday. The Steelers, as I mentioned before, fire Matt Canada. He shouldn't even have boarded the plane there yesterday when they went from Houston to Pittsburgh. C.J. Stroud had a big game there throwing for over 300 yards and two touchdowns. Just a terrible performance. Their defense did not look good. And Kenny Pickett, let's see what his knee's going to look like if he's going to play this coming week against the Ravens, which is an enormous game for them. And I'll talk more about that on Thursday as well. As the Ravens 3-1 and and the Steelers, they could actually share a first place and be in first place with the head-to-head win if they do beat the Ravens this coming Sunday. But that's just an awful performance there by the Steelers. I don't even want to talk about that any further. The Browns without Deshaun Watson, who was also nursing a shoulder injury, and we saw that just terribly because that was a game that I was looking forward to to see whether or not that they would stack up against the Baltimore Ravens there at home, but there were no match when you have Dorian Thompson-Robinson, your backup quarterback, in the game, and you knew that it was going to be slim pickings for the Browns to win this game. It was going to have to be low scoring, and as it was, what was he, 19 for 36, 121 yards, three interceptions, so of course he did nothing under center for the Browns there, and it was just a cakewalk win for the Ravens, who now are in first place all by themselves in the AFC North, and with a big matchup there against Pittsburgh, like I mentioned, this coming Sunday. Am I really going to get into Minnesota-Carolina? Minnesota gets their first win, Carolina's looking for their first win, as they're 0-4, and the... Vikings win 21-13. Do I even need to get into New England at Dallas? I get it, the reunion for a one, Ezekiel Elliott going back to the place, the team that was drafted by him, etc. But Mac Jones, who got pulled in the game through three interceptions, was awful, and the Cowboys flexed their muscles against an inept offense as they won 38-3. Vegas and the Chargers, I know the big story there was the former Charger player, Tillery, Jerry Tillery, hitting... Justin Herbert out of bounds, and that caused a firestorm on the sideline there by the Chargers, but they were end up victorious, the Chargers that is, in a game that not many people probably care or even saw, as you had those two teams going at it. And you did have a couple of good games there yesterday, where the Rams won in overtime, they had a big lead, they were up 20 to nothing before coming all the way back to tie, and then they went into overtime before the Rams were able to pull it off on a walk-off touchdown there. And give it up for the Rams. I understand the Colts. They're not a team that's, uh, who knows, even with that AFC South, maybe they'll end up being in the mix, but we would think that's not going to be the case. But you had the young receiver, Puka Nakua, with the 22-yard touchdown from Matthew Stafford there in the opening drive in overtime as the Rams win in Indianapolis there, 29-23. You had the game there last night. I believe it's the last game I'll touch on. Yeah, I covered all the other games. You had the game 
at MetLife, Chiefs, Jets, and it was a circus among any that we've seen with the whole Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey nonsense to think that tickets actually rose. The ticket prices because Taylor Swift was going to be in the building that they rose almost 50%. Seriously? Was she performing at halftime? Did I miss something there? I'm so sick of this Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey thing and this is going to go on forever. And it's weird because some of these stories, just give me 30 seconds on this. With the ticket prices and just the specter of having... Taylor Swift there in the suite with Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, and I'm sure Ryan Reynolds couldn't tell you the difference between a forward pass and a lateral, but for the Swifties and trying to bring new NFL fans to some of these reports that I saw in the news, I mean, seriously, the NFL has more fans than you can shake a stick at. We don't need to have any more fans, and if they're going to bring the Swifties on board, then this is going to be, ugh, I I just can't take it anymore. And as far as the game... Zach Wilson, other than that fumble, and I understand you can't discount that, and that was just terrible timing on Zach Wilson to have that fumble as they came back from a 17-0 deficit. They tied the game, and then I understand the terrible call there, Sauce Gardner with that interception that they got on Patrick Mahomes, and they had to bring that back. I know the Jets have terrible luck, and what more can you say? That was just a bad call. It had to be egregious, and yes, Sauce Gardner did, did have his hands on the receiver, But it wasn't anything that was earth-shattering. That was just a championship call for a championship team. And what more can you say? Now the Jets go to Denver. We talked about that a couple minutes ago. So who knows how that's going to play out here throughout the course of this week and into that game on Sunday. But the Chiefs survive. They win 23-20 there amongst the just pompous circumstance with everything that's going on with Taylor Swift. And please, I I could simply care less. And tonight you have Seattle at the Giants, as we talked about earlier, a game that I'll probably pop in every once in a while, but certainly will not be riveted by any stretch. All right, now to turn my attention to college football, and this will be brief. I don't want to hear from the Colorado Buffaloes anymore this year. Now, I understand the score was 48-41, and it looked a lot closer than what it was indicated, but USC blew their doors off of them in the first half. They were up 34-7. 34-14 at the half, and 48-21 before their valiant comeback was short. But this is all you need to know about the game. At 48-34, with about six minutes to go, the Buffalo offense looked like the Eagle offense in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, the first one back in Super Bowl 39, where Donovan McNabb seemed like he had all day, could have ordered a pizza, could have sat on the sofa on that final drive to cut that 24-14 lead to 24-21, It was so similar to that that I couldn't believe there was no urgency. There was just, they wanted to run the ball half the time throughout the course of that drive. And even though they did get the touchdown and had the onside kick with less than two minutes to go, but if they had a sense of just, like I said, if they played with their pants on fire and knew that the clock was their enemy, and if they tried to get the game or at least the score to where they could have made it where about three Three and a half, four minutes to go in the game, they could have had a shot to stop them and maybe get the ball back, but that wasn't the case because the onside kick was all they had and that was futile. So for the Buffaloes, we all know they're out of the top 25 after last week's performance against Oregon, and then this week, Caleb Williams throws six touchdowns, and I know Shadur Sanders had a very good performance there, but a lot of that's in garbage time, so before people are going to get geeked up on his performance, and yes, it was fine, but... When you're down 21, you knew that USC was going to put the take the foot off the pedal there. And 
it's not as if I'm rooting against Dion. I'm glad that the program has turned around and it looks like they got big things coming down the future, but they do not have a big time defensive player. And I get it, Travis Hunter, who's been out, the two-way player that we all know who got hit in that game against Colorado State. And even if he was in the game, I don't think he would have done enough to stop the bleeding there for that USC offense. So that's what we got there. I know Notre Dame won in thrilling fashion there against Duke on the road, which was the turnaround based on last week's performance against Ohio State where they lost right at the buzzer. So they kept their hopes alive there to see if they could get themselves back into the top 10 and maybe part of the discussion with the college football playoff. I don't think that's going to be the case, but kudos to the Fighting Irish for fighting back against Duke. And that was a tough loss for Duke. If they would have won that game to think they would have beaten Clemson and Notre Dame in the same year, that would have been huge for that school. But that wasn't the case. And then you had a wild game between LSU and Ole Miss where Ole Miss... 55-49, that was back and forth, high-powered offenses going at it, but LSU falls on the losing side, and you're not going to hear from them for the rest of the year as they already have two losses, but a big win there for Ole Miss in their building. And then you had Florida get whacked by Kentucky on the road where they were not in the game, 33-14, so the Gators, who also trying to see if they could get in the mix, not that they would, but still, we know the Gators as a team that, On the road, Kentucky, that was going to be a tough spot, and it was because they certainly did not show up there in the first half. If They were down 23-0 before you can blink an eye, and therefore, they're going to be probably not heard from for the rest of this year, especially in the SEC, or who knows? Maybe they'll have a thing or two to say before it's all said and done. But that's your college football there in a week number five. And now let me turn my attention to a few other things before I go, and I know I'm going to go past the hour here, but I'll try to be concise, quick, because these are some pretty big highlights here to dive into I know the Ryder Cup where Europe came out and swept the foursome there on Friday and that was something that we haven't seen in quite some time but the U.S. did stage a big rally there yesterday I know a lot of it had to do there Saturday with the drama surrounding the caddy there for Patrick Cantlay and Rory McIlroy the celebration there on 18 as they headed into the final round there yesterday but even with a late comeback they still fell short they were unable to snap that hex of not winning on European soil. They hadn't won in 30 years. And even though they made a late charge, but they fell short, I guess a lot of that had to do with based on what Europe did on Friday, where they had a six and a half to one and a half advantage there heading into the weekend. And then, of course, you had Rory McElroy with a few words to say into the face of the caddy there of Patrick Cantlay. And even though They try to temper that much to do about nothing, but that was an interesting story heading into yesterday. And even though the Americans, they put on a big fight and looked like they were going to, at least they made them sweat. But I don't know if there was a situation. I didn't really follow that closely yesterday. I was all over the place between the baseball and obviously the football. So I tried to, and of course with the time difference, with it being in Rome, I didn't really have a great sense for that final round. But all I do know is that the Americans did put on That final push there to see whether or not that they would overtake the Europeans after their great start there on Friday. But as it was, that was not the case. So the Europeans can at least brag for a couple more years before it's back on American soil. So that's what we have there with the Ryder Cup. A huge NBA trade as I put on my high tops and go through the association for another big trade. We had Damian Lillard there on Wednesday. And then yesterday, much lesser scale... But a player that was involved in that trade for Damian Lillard, the three-team deal between Portland, Milwaukee, and Phoenix, Drew Holiday, who went to Portland, now comes back east to Boston as the Celtics acquired him for Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, 
a first round pick this year, which was via Golden State, and a first round pick in 2029. I thought it was very pricey, to be quite honest. Now, Drew Holiday, a very good player, a guy who was a former All-Star, a champion there in the 2021 Buck team, but I thought it was a little bit too much, but hey, how I look at it is, he's a replacement for Marcus Smart, a guy that is going to be a point guard, a guy that could lock down the other opposing top guard, or maybe even, if you want to go as far as saying, maybe even a wing, depending on how stout that wing is. I don't know if he's going to be able to guard a guy like LeBron James, but still very good defender, as we all know. And I thought it was an excellent trade by the Celtics. Brogdon is always hurt. Same for Robert Williams. We know he's a beast in the paint when it comes defensively. Challenged offensively, but he can get his boards and he can get his points. But Brogdon, who had a good year last year, but again, cannot trust his health. And I do love this trade. And not to say that this shifts the balance of power to the Celtics in the Eastern Conference, but it certainly helps. And it's going to be interesting knowing that he's going to be on a Celtic team that I'm sure they're going to pick his brain to know when they play one another. And especially in... The spring next year, if the Celtics and Bucks have a mano a mano showdown for the Eastern Conference, that is going to be a big positive for the Celtics to have there. And to me, like I said, a little bit too rich, I thought, to trade those players and even the picks for that matter. But you know what? Holiday's a step up. Step up from Brogdon and even a step up from Marcus Smart. Smart, we understand. He's a blood and guts glue guy, unlike we've seen there for the Celtics over the last decade, but Holiday is a very good basketball IQ, not a great shooter like Marcus, but can get his points, but he's not going to be asked to do that, because the offense, we all know, is going to come from the three players in Tatum, Brown, and Chris Stapsworth-Zingas. So that's what we have at the trade there. Big news for the NHL as we get ready to ramp up the season there on Saturday as I lace up my skates, where you have Andre Vasilevsky, who had Back surgery is going to miss the first two months of the season. And that's a big blow for a Tampa team who, yes, comes off a nice run, although they lost in the first round to the Maple Leafs last year. But the three Stanley Cups in a row prior to that, the back-to-back in 2020 and 2021, and not having their netminder for the first couple of months is going to be a challenge for a Tampa Bay team. But we would think when it's all said and done, they'll probably be there. They'll make it to the postseason. Do they have another long playoff run in them? Who knows? And come Thursday, I will handicap the NHL season and give you a preview of what to expect here with the season just days away. And then to wrap up, there was a fight there on Saturday night between Canelo Alvarez and Jermel Charlo. It was a no contest, unanimous decision, dominated by Alvarez. No surprise there. Big knockdown in the seventh round, only the second time that Charlo's been knocked down. And I didn't watch, I know that they were fighting, but I didn't bring this up on Thursday because this wasn't anything that needed to be on the radar, and I get it, it's a sports podcast, and you know me, I talk about it all, but that wasn't a fight that had any type of buildup or had any type of hype surrounding this fight, and we understand it's Canelo Alvarez, we understand the type of champ he is, etc., etc., but still, Charlo was no match for Alvarez in this fight, as it was lopsided as it was, two judges Scored the fight 118-109, the other was 119-108. So that's all you need to know about that fight. So obviously you didn't miss much unless you're just a dynamo boxing fan or just an enormous Canelo Alvarez fan. So that's what you had there Saturday night as he defended his super middleweight championship belt and pretty much did not have to break out a sweat or break into a sweat as he easily beat Charlo there Saturday night. And now do it, my good people. 
Another episode, a lot packed into this podcast, a little bit over an hour, but you know I always bring the pain when it comes to what's happening in the world of sports. One more time, 400th episode in the books. Thanks to you guys and gals for participating, for joining, for carving out the precious time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. As I mentioned, if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review, throw me a few stars, write a review, just to increase the visibility. That's all I ask of you to do. So if you could do that, share that with the sports fan in your life, etc. Again, I would sincerely appreciate that. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, platforms, channels, you could do so with the following on YouTube, at J Reels, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, X, Twitter, J Reels One, just the number. Question, comment, suggestion, at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up you guys and gals because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA. I love talking sports pretty much since birth to share my. Fire, passion, fury, energy with all of my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise, feelings on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, directed, and full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast... On the flip, baby.